Hello, and thank you for joining us. I'm Joanne Guo. And I'm Sarah Gerber. We are the co-hosts of the Track 2 Podcast. The Track 2 Podcast explores the stories and people who create conditions for a thriving, vibrant society. This season, we bring you the voices of stakeholders who help shape philanthropy. Today, we're in conversation with Jamia Jowers, a strategist in international affairs. Jamia designs and delivers strategic programming for rising global leaders in international policy and development for the Harris School of Public Policy at the University of Chicago. She empowers scholars to confront and overcome complex challenges with a focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion. Jamia's work spans public policy programs and partnerships with corporate, philanthropic, and community stakeholders. Jamia was a staffer with the National Security Council in the executive office of President Barack Obama. She spent two years with the Multilateral Affairs Directorate advocating for human rights and UN reform. Jamia was instrumental in the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, which focused on trade, investment, and security. She also served as a liaison to the Atrocity Prevention Board and the U.S. National Action Plan on Women, Peace, and Security. Jamia received her B.A. in political science from the University of Illinois and her master's in international relations from Salve Regina University. I do everything as if I were that person. So if I am an immigrant crossing the border and my child is in a cage, I would want someone to be fighting like hell to help them. And so in everything I do, I put myself in it. What I want you to do for me, what I want you to write the policy, what I want you to come to my home, what would I want you to do for me if I was you? Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm feeling incredibly grateful personally and for our community to be a part of this conversation with you. You know, first, I just want to say what a privilege it is to be with you both today. And I'm so excited to be in discussion with the Track 2 audience. What first captured your interest in philanthropy and, and in your case, public service? Where did that journey start for you? I'm from a small town in Illinois called Peoria. Think of the shape of Illinois and think of where the heart might be. I was raised in a Baptist church and by my mom, and both really instilled a duty and honor to give to others that were not as blessed as we were. In my younger age, I didn't have that vocabulary word. We always say to who much is given, much is required. And so mm-hmm. I saw it as a blessing. Of course, now I know it to be philanthropy. I love that, how people come to their own personal understanding of the word and how their experiences, especially early experiences, mm-hmm. have shaped that. I, I think many people can relate to those kinds of journeys. Um, and it's helpful to see the broad tapestry of how we understand philanthropy. Yeah, I would see those infomercials asking you to sponsor a child or help refugees and like, okay, I got to tell my mom, we got to give to these organizations. Mm. And at that time, I didn't understand that what I was doing was philanthropy. You know, Mm. my neighbor struggling with food or housing or underemployment as I got older also was acutely aware, especially when it came into my career, that poverty in all of its forms was even more precarious for those in underdeveloped contexts. I'm interested in, in hearing your experience with 
the concept of futures thinking, how people create their future. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you have anything you'd like to share on that. Yeah. So for me, I think that heart of service, the seed was planted inside me and sort of the development in human rights and philanthropy piece when I witnessed the genocide in Rwanda. And I remember watching it and seeing the news coverage and just feeling horrified and thinking about the Holocaust. And we had said never again, and we had made all this progress. And how could this be happening you know, at this moment. And that just changed me forever. And I went on to university and I said, I have to be there. I have to have some practitioner experience. And so I was awarded born National Security Scholarship to study in Nairobi, Kenya. And I worked there as a research assistant for the Center for Governance and Democracy. At that time, Kenya was coming off a 24-year dictatorship, and I worked with this NGO to disperse election material and help them promote peace in the region. It was very tense. I lived in uh, a neighborhood called Harlingham, but it was tense all over the city. I got to see firsthand what they were fighting for. I, I take this moment in my life with me forever. They were the same issues that mm-hmm. we grapple with in, mm-hmm. in our community. Food insecurity, policing, homelessness, bad governance. Just like the U.S., they had underinvested neighborhoods and very, very wealthy ones. Mm-hmm. And so when I came back to the States, I knew that I needed to be very intentional about how I continued this work, especially because my station was Illinois and not D.C., New York. I wasn't headed to The Hague or et cetera. So I had to be very prescriptive about the positions and the direction and sort of the strategy of my life. I know people can make plans and they say God laughs at it, but I felt like I had to have some sort of blueprint on what I should be doing next in order to feel like I was making a contribution to social impact. Mm. I'm curious to know your first time out of the country. My first trip abroad was in Nairobi. I got a chance not only to visit Nairobi, but Tanzania and Zanzibar. One of the reasons I went is because it was a slave trading post. I went there and met with the tour guide and got to experience the moment when your humanity is taken from you. Also a connection with the ancestors and to hone my passion and make sure this is my life's work. This is what you live and breathe, what keeps you up at night, what makes you happy when you make inroads, seeing it on TV in the comfort and air condition of my home, and then being among the people there and truly understanding the challenges that lie ahead and trying to figure out where my place was in that moment solidified the work that I do right now in in human rights and national security. Hmm. It's incredible the kind of power those early experiences can have in terms of building foundation and staying power for your own resolve and how you navigate work on a like higher purpose level. It's pretty important. Yeah, to have those. It's profound. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Makes me also think about this connection that you've made between multiple places in Africa. Like must have created some map in your mind as an adolescent, right? And recognize that there was more work to be done and that you wanted to do it. It would have been really easy to turn around and go back and say, 
oh my gosh, it's overwhelming. I can't do anything there. I'd love to hear some of your thoughts about ways that we can help instill experiences or create opportunities for young people to connect with these other parts of their interest and curiosity about the way others live. There must be some component, something, some light bulb that went off Mm. around this idea that you were going to be the master of your future. And I'm really interested in hearing that because I think that we also have a lot of young people who listen, who are interested in knowing how other people create their future. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you have anything you'd like to share on that. I think, again, much like the trip to East Africa, it made me who I am. It made me appreciate the challenges that other people have and recognize the privilege that I had. And I think people don't understand that everybody has privilege. You just have to understand what yours is. Mm-hmm. You know, it could be based on gender. It could be based on class. It could be based on race, but everybody has privilege. And so it reminded me of the privilege that I carry. Also what I needed to extend to those who didn't walk in that same privilege. Mm-hmm. To your point, it was overwhelming. I would see children in the street and they would have these bottles and they'd be sniffing them. It was like some sort of chemical agent. It was a way to cope with the hunger. I, I remember when I came back from Nairobi and finally got a job with then Senator Obama. In my mind, I'd never dreamt of working for Senator Obama when I was coming up and on this internship before he you know, was elected, I had never dreamed of working in the White House. I had never dreamed of working in the National Security Council. Mm-hmm. And there had been in that moment, a literal imposter syndrome as in, well, what's a girl from Peoria going to do beyond this good and I air quotes government job? Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wanted to do more. I knew that I was capable of more. I knew that I had to do more and that I would live with regret if I didn't figure out a way to meet that responsibility and that passion that was on my heart. But I think I froze in a moment where I saw not a lot of people who looked like me doing what I wanted to do. Mm. That was a little frightening. And I remember I'd seen a picture come through Mm. and it was a child and the stomach was descended and you could could see the bones in the child. And I sent it to my aunt, who has been one of my biggest cheerleaders in this work. And I said, I don't understand how we can let this happen. Like, what am I even doing here? I was determined to make it. And I was determined to make a difference somehow for the people who looked like me, but just happened to live in another place that was underdeveloped, mostly due to colonization. But I just felt like I had to set it right. At that moment, I was working on mostly domestic issues as a constituent service agent. So military affairs, veterans affairs, immigration, asylum cases. But I wasn't doing international work at that moment. And so I was like, well, what's the point? And my husband always says, play your position. And what he means is that we're all pieces to a puzzle. We're all pieces in the value chain. And when we work together, change can happen. But we all have to play a role. It can't just be a small few. And to answer your question about like how we can engage, yes, it's much more difficult now 
but there are ways to still experience the challenges that others are grappling with and not just experience them, but also make a difference. Mm. You spent so much of your time focused on service to others mm. and you've drawn this clear map of the world, like where your interests were and how you could piece together that history for yourself. I if you have anything you'd like to share on that. I do everything as if I were that person. So if I am an immigrant crossing the border and my child is in a cage, I would want someone to be fighting like hell to help us. And so in everything I do, I put myself in the, I, what I want you to do for me, what I want you to write the policy, what I want you to come to my home, what would I want you to do for me if I was you? Mm. I remember one of my most rewarding moments was assisting a constituent with her asylum case. Uh, she mm -hmm. was fleeing her country for its FGM customs, mm -hmm. and she feared for her life and for her daughter's life. And I just remember being able to help her build her case and be a sounding board through our office that she was in grave danger and that she had a valid asylum case. And after some time, she called me and said that she had been granted asylum. And mm. I was like, this is it. This is, this mm -hmm. is where I'm supposed to be. This is the work that I was called to do. Mm -hmm. And so many people might say, well, you weren't abroad. You were working domestic issues. I was still very much able to influence policy internationally. So mm -hmm. the way that I think about it is our wins and even our challenges made it to the DC office where policy was crafted around them. Powerful. And mm -hmm. when I got the job as a CSA, I was just so excited because it was truly grassroots work. I traveled mm -hmm. all over the state speaking with veterans and getting their back pay, taking chai in homes of our residents in the evening, discussing U.S., Israel, and Palestine policy. I even attended a number of immigration and naturalization ceremonies. Mm -hmm. And I think we just need to understand that when we look at opportunities and not always see things as failures or when the plan doesn't go the way we want. It was for something greater. And you just have to walk in your purpose. And when he went to the White House, I had to decide what was next. Going back to your journey and the formative times of your work in Africa, what I'm curious about is how you ended up selecting the public service route, because I think there are other routes to do work in that space. And I'm curious, what was it that took you on that track as part of fulfilling what you saw as a, a bigger purpose for what you're here to do? I don't know that I consciously picked that. I picked a career that interests me, but also that I felt like had a gap. Like there were gaps in research. There were gaps in leadership. There were gaps in innovation or policies, or for that matter, people who wanted to actually go there and do the work. And not just talk about the things that they're doing. Wanted yeah. to go and get their hands dirty. Who wanted to go live with the Maasai. Mm -hmm. Wanted to understand beyond what journalists might show. And it might not even be sort of the, the correct exploration of a country. 
So often we see the side of Africa that was always in conflict or always in chaos or always Mm -hmm. poverty peace. And I got to see all of the beautiful pieces of Mm -hmm. Africa. And I think they often talk about the continent as a monolith and it's just not. And so twofold, I wanted to, to be an agent of change, but I also wanted to make sure that I represented them. I think especially for Black people, and I can't speak for the community, but I think we stand on so many shoulders and we have such mm-hmm. a responsibility. In addition to making your parents proud Mm-hmm. You want to exude into like you want to show society that you are playing your role, but you also want to be responsible for justice, you know, to set things right. You want to make the world as it should be. And when you've come from disenfranchisement, when you've come from discrimination, I think that is just a natural reaction to have that social justice mind frame. Mm. And in that, it could have been anything, right? It could have been criminal justice. It could have been uh, women's empowerment. It could have been a number of things. I was just called more forcefully to work in Africa and especially to conflict zones and security. There was just something, even when I made it to the White House and I, again, didn't dream to work there. But when I found myself doing mostly domestic policy work, I was dreaming of a way to get to USAID or a State Department mm-hmm. or you know, PRM or any one of those divisions. And when I got the opportunity to go to NSC, I was like, yeah, that is the optimal alignment and like mm-hmm. where passion and like preparedness met. Mm. That is a spectacular way of describing it. Many people who work in philanthropy or humanitarian work have a mixed relationship with security. Yeah. Now draw that connection between all three, government, philanthropy, and security. Absolutely. I think the question is fair game. There are a couple of takeaways from my time in NSC. And although there is a very complicated relationship that humanitarian aid and just human rights in general has with security and security forces, not to say that it isn't the same here domestically, because we're having our fair share of issues with security and police. Yeah. But I think the fundamental problem is who is in these rooms. So I worked in the Multilateral Affairs Directorate as well as the African Affairs Directorate. And so in the Multilateral Affairs Office, I supported a team who worked on human rights, right? So UN reform, Mm -hmm. the presidential memorandum on international initiatives to advance human rights of LGBTQ persons, as well as the Atrocity Prevention Board. After that, I had the opportunity to work for the African Affairs Directorate. And so there, I supported a team that produced, among many things, our U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, which focused on trade, investment, and security on the continent, being led by Senior Director Grant Harris. And so being able to work with someone like Samantha Power and Grant Harris on meaty issues like women, peace and security and the larger global human rights, you get a a peek into everything. You see the great policy that is made, whether it has a security slant or not, as well as all of the red tape. 
What I noticed in these situation rooms, secure meeting rooms, when we were, you know, figuring out how to get Coney or a number of Mm -hmm. other security issues, how to get aid, issues of sovereignty, Mm -hmm. rainy season, what kind of planes, like all of these things. And I would notice that if there was a person of color in the room, that person is on the outside of the table. Mm. And there were not very many women in the room. Mm. And so I realized the complicated relationship is because we are not at the table. And I know I mm. that that phrase has been worn out, stomped into the ground and lit on fire. But it is true. Mm. We are not in the room. And so these issues where we have use of force or we have policies that don't take into account the local community, when we are not listening, we're not giving Africans an opportunity to respond to African challenges. That complicated security situation is because not enough people of color are at the table. Not enough experts are given access to make these strategic leadership decisions. And Mm -hmm. so I wholeheartedly believe that as we have more people Uh, of color, getting into careers of human rights, getting into philanthropy, making sure Mm -hmm. that the money is going to communities of color, that we're decolonizing philanthropy in the ways of shifting leadership to local communities. I mean, Refugee does this amazingly well. You can't get at the heart of closing this race wealth gap if you're not well-versed on the issues and how they intersect. So donors and organizations must understand this foundation of colonialization. Mm -hmm. Uh, Then you'll be able to usher in the dollars or grants at a higher rate to communities of color. I mentioned the leadership of Refugee. They took their executive director in Kenya elevated him to become the chief executive officer and the U.S. executive director then took a step back to become a managing director. So that shift, that very, very critical shift and that strategic decision-making for this refugee organization presented a new opportunity. So not only in the reporting structure, but offerings and understandings of how they serve that refugee community, the girls that they serve. Mm -hmm. So that decolonization is really, by their own words, eliminated this really outdated mentality that's rooted in this imperialistic and Mm -hmm. colonial past that prevails in much of the social impact space. So to me, not that the answer is ever simple, it's always complicated, always, always. But it could be less complicated if the right people were in the room and more importantly, if they were being validated, not in this top-down, expert-driven male world. They are really given an opportunity to drive policy in its most authentic and sustainable form. Mm. That's something we've been exploring, actually, in some of the other episodes and in this season more broadly, how philanthropy itself could be part of the solution, just building better spaces for these conversations to happen, bringing more people to the table as part of its role. 
And I'm really sort of curious to even hear you expand on that a little bit more. And as we look at it in the larger like civil society space and who is at the table is a really important part of that. Yeah, 100%. I mean, there is obviously a direct correlation between one's lived experiences and those of the decision makers and and those who are writing checks, so to speak. I mean, it's definitely a paradigm shift. I mean, I think 2020 has definitely highlighted the air quotes, here we go, wokeness of people of color and their allies. It's like, this global social justice movement is on full display and and COVID's only highlighted just how real it's been for them Mm -hmm. and how the grave circumstances continue to be perpetuated because we're habitually overlooked, undervalued, and more important, left out of the decisions um, that affect our lives. And I think that's the same with philanthropy. What we've seen in some of these other stories is the power of being able to bring in stories or voices that are missing from Mm -hmm. just a design perspective to start with, not to mention like the system itself being improved by their presence. It seems so logical and yet Mm. surprisingly absent. Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> and of course, there are a lot of factors and forces that are making that happen. It's remarkable that there isn't more of us. You know, we have already decided who has the expertise. And with this education, this dotted line to income, it's integral to empowering individuals or a community by extension, that person's future. Mm-hmm. And I think what people don't understand is philanthropy is more than writing a check. It's a lifestyle. It's a story that's modeled through your everyday actions. Mm -hmm. It's not a handout, but it should be an avenue for reconciliation and self-sufficiency, Hashima, respect, honor, dignity. And those organizations who understand philanthropy and social enterprise really understand sustainable philanthropy and how it can be the answer to many other international development challenges. Organizations are moving towards this model, but you know, leaders have to have the discipline and innovation to figure out new ways to fund the work. Mm-hmm. And think there's this over-dependency model on our government or donors or other foundations. Having a more sustainable revenue allows you this independence from mm-hmm. the pressures that come with rules and regulations or other streams of funding that don't have a lot of flexibility and have a lot of red tape. I feel like philanthropy should be equitable, sustainable, but also grounded in the local economy. Mm. I'm interested in in hearing your experience with track one and track two diplomacy. Mm -hmm. I guess I would describe it how I may be living it now. So in, in my work currently, my nine to five is my first track. And my five to midnight is my second track. Mm-hmm. So in, in various positions at the university, so I recruit, I have in the past helped diversify faculty, and then moving on to the Harris Public Policy, led the inaugural Obama Foundation Scholars Program. 
And, you know, it's a very unique program for those who don't know it. Our MAIDP program is a tailored curriculum for rising international leaders who seek a followed foundation in policy design and analysis. We educate the students from around the globe who have this shared commitment of getting to solutions to the most pressing challenges in their communities. In my nine to five, that's my first track. The second track is everything else, right? The national security and the human rights piece of my work that I don't necessarily get to do through my nine to five is through my five to 11. So that is 100% two tracked. So my service with PPIA, which is Public Policy and International Affairs, which Harris is a consortium member, and the organization has a commitment to increasing diversity and fostering inclusion in public service for people of color. So we give one-time awards of $5,000 for graduates. And then I'm on the board of the Chicago Refugee Coalition, which covers what happens to refugees after the 90 days. So if you don't know anything about refugees, the government helps them get settled But then after 90 days, that's when the NGOs kick in. If I landed in a new country, needed to learn the language, learn the city, get a job, become integrated society, I'd need more than 90 days. Again, the Chicago Refugee Coalition fills in the gaps. I also spend my time with Refugee. It's the first and only NGO that's founded to meet the needs of the most vulnerable of the world's refugees. And that's Mm -hmm refugee girls and young women Mm -hmm. who have been lost or separated from their families as a result of conflict or war. You all probably are well aware, but you know, there's 18 million displaced people in sub-Saharan Africa. Mm -hmm. And over half of this population is under the age of 18. Mm -hmm. And so refugee provides trauma-informed holistic care for these unaccompanied, separated, and orphaned refugee girls who have fled to Nairobi. Again, that it's coming full circle, my service in Kenya, and now being linked up with refugee. And many of the girls are seeking safety and protection from Somalia, South Sudan, and the Congo. So Mm -hmm. uh, refugee-run safe house, education program, vocational training, and an artisan collective, which is their social enterprise piece of it. So by day, I'm doing curriculum, master's degree, action plans, you know, social entrepreneurship, and international policy. It allows me to stay mm-hmm. connected with the refugee community in Chicago, you know, my neighbors, and serve them through a legal referral service, food security, mental wellness, and financial literacy programs. Mm-hmm. And then in those last few hours of that, you know, <laughs> five to midnight, I also spend my time with refugee and I'm not only keeping track of my neighbors in this work of refugee assistance and partnership, but also staying connected to the situation in East Africa and being able to continue to serve those girls there. So I would say definitely the national security, the human rights, the philanthropy, it all is embedded in this two-track operation that I embody every day. Mm. So domestic and international come together. I feel like I said too much. (laughs) No, not at all. (laughs) 
Joanne and I are just looking at each other because we haven't had such a great answer to that before. It's perfect. <laughs> I'm so glad. When you asked it, I was like, oh, not, I mean, I, you know, you think of the literal diplomacy, like who yeah. am I negotiating with? Like right. not counting my five-year-old, right? Not, <laughs> yeah. not that negotiation, but like what warlord have I wrangled, you know, Nigerian girls back. But I think mm-hmm. if you're intentional about your approach, you can certainly be a part of, you know, Chicago Council on Global Affairs or other think tanks mm-hmm. in your home state, but also have service, whether it's philanthropy or human rights, but also on a continent that's not your own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's perfect. We usually talk to about how track two is people to people diplomacy. So I love the framing of just it is about your neighbors. It's about the people next to you as well as the people across the globe. Your global neighbors. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I agree. You have to take care of your backyard in addition to your global neighbor. I take that very literally that I am Mm. a global citizen. And so I can't neglect those in my backyard or down the block for those that are overseas. Mm -hmm. I'm curious to hear how you would define a good society, Mm. a thriving society. I think obviously a good society is a democratic one, but I also think a good society looks out for the least among them. I mean, there will always be have and have nots, but it is your service that allows the equity and the diversity to permeate for you not to leave anyone behind, that you would want them to be treated as you would like to be treated. I think you build a good society on trust, on implementation. You know, Lauren Hill has a song called Mr. Intentional. You have to be intentional about everything that you do. There has to be transparency. This I wish you would have given me earlier so I could. No, you just uh, brought in Lauren Hill. You wouldn't have put Lauren Hill in that if I gave it to you in advance. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Oh, my goodness. Sarah likes to call artists pathfinders. You know, that's Mm. sort of the Sundance way, too, is is looking to artists to give us the words when when we don't have them. Mm -hmm. But I think for many of us, the artists who were in our ears while Mm. we were walking to school or doing whatever it was we needed to do, they gave us strength and shared their voice with us in a way that we maybe hadn't had an opportunity to practice. Mm. People like Lauren Hill are pretty formative. <laughs> I was thinking about my own college experience. So I think the only thing that I would add maybe to that is that the goal is always to get to world peace, right? Equity across the board. Since the creation of our union, there's always been not enough parity and equity. Mm-hmm. And so I think the goal should be that there is this lens of equity in all we do, right? So that until we get to this place of this equality for every person, everywhere, we should always be striving to invest in our greater good. We sometimes beat up on philanthropy, but the donors and the organizations are standing in the gaps, right? They're they're flexible by they're dynamic, they're efficient, and they honestly fill the gap in a whole host of issues, right? Underdevelopment, incompetent governance, climate change. As a policymaker, I, I know there always will be a moment where government has gone as far as it can. 
Mm-hmm. And so I guess I want to bring it back to this symbiotic partnership between government and philanthropy that that we've had some great wins with government, right? Women's uh, right to vote, affirmative action, you know, et cetera. But then there's still going to be a piece or policies where governments still fail the most vulnerable. Mm-hmm. And this is the perfect place for philanthropy to pick up, to be individualized, mm-hmm. to have partnership or allyship or collaboration. I mean, we truly are better together. It reminds me of when I was working for President Obama and we were in the office and he said to his staff in his you know, Obama voice, you know, come on, people. There's no monopoly on good ideas. See, you thought I was going to do an imitation. No, 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 no. (laughs) But, you know, put his voice in your head and he said, you know, there's no monopoly on good ideas. When he said that, it just, it triggered in me this belief that our diversity, our inclusion, our lived experiences that we bring into the world that are so fast and eclectic really is the answer to solving the world's most pressing challenges, Mm -hmm. recognizing each other's humanity. This is a united effort, right? Good leaders will not only embrace the continued partnership of philanthropy, but they work together and I think they applaud each other. You mentioned think tanks a few times. My last question is, is there one in particular that you follow? 100%. So first and foremost, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs. I'm an emerging leader and went through their program. So I value the research and the uh, scholarship that is coming out of that think tank. And then the Center for Foreign Relations, so CFR. It's like the the guide. Um, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm very heavily involved with their Diversity and International Affairs Conference, get their CFR daily briefing, you know, just combing the pedagogy that they have. I am feeling incredibly grateful personally and for our community to be a part of this conversation with you. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much for asking me. I, I am so excited. And like you were saying before, I just thank you because I think as much as I want to do these things, again, I second guess. And like, I was going to be like, oh, no, not me. <laughs> oh, no. I was not- never going to let you do that. But yeah. <laughs> She's like, very persistent. <laughs> I am not going to captivate an audience. When I think about things like this. I think about, you know, Linda Thomas Greenfield or Samantha Power or Susan Rice, like, These are the people that like folks want to hear from. And I couldn't understand what story I might be able to tell or connect with. But I also understand that women's voices are absent and black women as well. And so just being so honored that you allowed me this space to share my journey with you, but also give my perspective, which I've always been wanting to do, but just so very afraid that it won't translate. So thank you for that. That really brings it home. Mm, I really appreciate that. Thank you both for having me. I appreciate it. I love that we continued on what has been an emergent theme in this season the role of philanthropy in bringing all the stakeholders to the table. By stakeholders, we mean individuals and organizations and communities that have a direct interest in the process or the outcomes of a project. It could be Mm -hmm. that broad. It could be 
a philanthropic endeavor. It could be a humanitarian one. It could be one related to public policy. And I think the equity piece is familiar to you. Jamia provides such a great example of what that can look like and the power of finding your seat at the table, I guess. And she has a great real life illustration of that in her work on the Hill and being in rooms that she wouldn't otherwise be in, but noticing where she was in the room and who's at the table. It's interesting to think about being in the rooms where decisions are made and being at the table in those rooms. The distinction between those, it's an illustration for where philanthropy plays a role in the space and where like public service or public policy plays a role. So in Jamia's case, as we explore in this conversation, the theme is stronger around the public service and public policy side of things. But what I love is that her framework, the way she's approaching these spaces she's in, is this for the good of humanity, which we've identified as the core of philanthropy. There's an interesting added layer when thinking about this in a security context, which is part of what Jamia's experience brings to this conversation. And I'm thinking about a number of different things here. One, just the dynamic of who's at the table and who is part of the dialogue in a security context create an additional layer because maybe all those voices being represented is, is trickier and harder to do. And so who is at the table is even more important. That kind of framing around good of humanity and sort of the intention of the public servants at those tables is incredibly important. And I think it's just very evident in Jamia's story, how she holds that kind of responsibility, that duty, that honor that she talks about. The other key word, action. It's one thing to have some sense that, yes, we want to have representation at the table, but representation is very limited if the room only looks like one type of individual. Mm -hmm. And, And that was something that she talked about Mm -hmm. That was maybe 10 years ago, and perhaps things have changed, you know, give or take there on the years. It's an observation that's worth noting because it it can seem as if the representation was always there by virtue of the power vested in the people who are making these decisions. But Mm -hmm. to her point, it's not the same if there isn't someone who looks like you at the table. Mm -hmm. And when I say looks like you, I mean lives your life, has had your background, Or can at least relate to some of the experiences that the people that they're hoping to serve are are going through. Mm -hmm. There are always people who are affected by action. That's part of the power in the background and experience she brings into that space, too. I mean, she starts out by giving us the context of growing up in a small town in Illinois. And I think that that's a big part of that representative voice in these spaces is that she has an experience of a lot of regular Americans. And that's surprisingly hard to come by sometimes. There's value in the lived experience being something that allows you to bring your knowledge and experience and judgment to the table. Mm -hmm. And then the purpose, right? The purpose, like, oh, so you bring all of that to the table. Now, what is the purpose? Create a shared understanding, make something relevant, or is it simply to make a decision? And maybe it's all three. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Did you want to talk about Africa? Yeah, yeah. maybe. Tell me, tell me more about what you're thinking with that. Obviously, it's a theme, but I'm curious more of what you heard in your re-listening to it that caught your interest. I heard an identity bond, like a big part of her experience in advocating for human rights is intertwined with her identity. 
mm-hmm, just mm-hmm. who she is as a person and where she came from, where she comes from, who she is today. And you mentioned some things about the Sudanese school. This is a good spot to reflect on it. And it can also build upon the importance of developing a bond with the people, like the people in the country on the ground is what I mean. Yeah. For me, one of the powerful experiences in my work in South Sudan was getting that firsthand experience of what it's like to move through a system with less infrastructure, with a lot of change happening all at once. Without that kind of firsthand experience, it's really hard to relate to all of the other challenges that come out of not having infrastructure. That may not be obvious, right? There's like, there are like 30 miles of paved roads in all of South Sudan. Yeah, we stayed in the tallest building in the country, just four stories high. Yeah, electricity, internet, all those things. And like, it's like one of those things that for me, I'm cautious around language about it because I don't see it as like a, I guess the word is like pity. You know, I'm like, no one really wants pity. It's more like, okay, how do you increase your understanding and empathy for a context that then informs what may be the primary topic of conversation? It's definitely about connecting with people there as well, but it's also connecting with the experience. And I think for Jamia, that early experience she had in Africa allowed her to then have a much more informed perspective in her service going forward. And I think that there's lots of dynamics to that. There's the dynamic of like, obviously, it made a big impact on her and it's shaped the way she sees the world and the things that she does. But it has a lot of just practical influence, which in a position like the one she is in was, is very important. Mm-hmm. And for her, it was also that moment she talked about when your humanity is taken away, that pertaining to slavery. It's hard yeah. to have a stakeholder discussion if people are just surviving. They're just focused on surviving. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Which is the power of having someone who can be a representative stakeholder, which in the case of my work in South Sudan was supporting one of those people. Michael Kwani is part of the Clinton administration's Sudanese Lost Boys program that allowed him to immigrate to the United States as a refugee in after the wake of genocide in Sudan. And for him and many of the other Sudanese lost boys in their experience, education was a really important part of their ability to survive. It's what got many of them through the 10 years of displacement in various refugee camps in Africa. And many of them continued to pursue educational opportunities in the States when they came over. So for him, being able to take that experience back to his community is a pretty big driving force and sense of purpose for himself. The nonprofit organization that supported his vision, we went to support that that school, the vision of that school being possible. And throughout that entire experience, not just while in country, but out of the country, was understanding how to do something that is relatively straightforward, building a school in a place with really minimal infrastructure and at a time with a decent amount of instability. And there's just so many things that we thought would be really straightforward that weren't. And so I think there's just so much cross-cultural experience in understanding how to achieve something in different kinds of conditions. Maybe it feels obvious that public service or public service background intersects with philanthropy in the way that we're exploring philanthropy right now, at least. But I'm just Um, curious. Well, I think there's a distinction. There's definitely part of public service that belongs to government. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there's an obligation. It's part of the design of democracy. And then there's philanthropy, which is 
is there to address big problems. Charity to alleviate mm-hmm. suffering, philanthropy to address big problems. And government is a stakeholder mm-hmm. in the problem because right. that's part of the ecosystem. You know, yeah. in some of the cases that the two of you were talking about, sometimes the government can be the problem that's hurting people. For the good of humanity. That's the theme that came out of the entrepreneurship season. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely the theme that continues in philanthropy. We touch on this in a lot of different ways. In entrepreneurship, there was a heavy tech influence. Mm -hmm. There was also social innovation as dialogue. And to have a representative dialogue, you have to have stakeholders, people who are affected by decisions that are being made about their lives that affect their lives. I'm not sure where this journey will end, but I have some idea that as we continue discussions, we'll eventually come to this place where we can identify at least two driving forces, one of them being humanity, humans, and the other being technology or the tools that we use to achieve the things that we hope to achieve. Mm -hmm. In either case, for the good of humanity, we have to talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Thanks for joining us. I'm Joanne. And I'm Sarah. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join us for the next episode.